what is the most marvelous thing you ever seen? I'll give you time to think about it. What is the most marvelous thing you've ever seen? For those with spouses, you might want to turn to your spouse and say, it's you. You know, just don't, don't. Go ahead, get you some brownie points if you can. But what is the most marvelous thing you've ever seen? I would have to say, probably for myself, before I looked at this passage, I would probably say, well, the most marvelous thing I could see was the Cowboys to win the Super Bowl. That would probably be the most marvelous thing I could ever see in this life. That would probably be the most marvelous thing we'll see this in all of eternity, I probably would have said. <laughs> but then I come to our text today. And as I start thinking about of all the marvelous things in the world, we think of space, the stars, the planets, the moons, things we have not even yet to notice and see. We think of great events that happen. We think of the wonders of the world, phenomena we can't even understand. All these marvelous things. But my friends, I would argue today that although these things are marvelous, they do not compare to the local church. The church is one of the most marvelous things that we can witness on this side of heaven. And I want to turn us today to our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we'll be today. We'll pick up in verse 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Amen. And our passage reads this. I'm reading for the English Standard Version. And it reads this. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now Timothy has come to us from you and he has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. 
For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and the Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearers, readers, and doers of this holy and sanctified word. For a thought today, I would like to use as a title, The Crown of Life. The Crown of Life. Let's pray. Lord, we seek your words. Not the words of man, not the words that will flatter us, not the words that will please us, as you talked about last week, but we seek your word. And I pray that today we would see God's word as what it is, God's word. And we'll trust it and use it to sanctify us according to your will. Even now, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You see, what has been quite obvious for our time in 1 Thessalonians is Paul's love and commitment to the people in Thessalonica. I think that's pretty clear. If we go back even to the read in the passages in Acts, we see his letters written here to the Thessalonians. He's clearly committed to them. He's clearly affectionate for the people of God there. We started back in chapter 1 where Paul gives thanks to God. He thanks, he thanks God primarily for their work of faith, their labor and love, and their steadfastness of hope. And you see, it's kind of these pillars that will serve as reference points throughout the entire letter. Paul will bring them up again in the letter, even in chapter 1, as he notes how their faith has gone out to all the regions, even in Macedonia and Achaia, the whole countries and other countries, their faith has gone out. You see, even what is most notably being said about them, we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it tells us that the, the main thing that's been known about them is how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, this is not kind of a one-time event for them, but this was their constant proclamation to show that they truly had changed lives. They continued to leave their eyes and turn and serve the living true God as they waited for Christ to return. And you see, I think chapter 1 really sets up the theme of Thessalonians for the entire book. And I think that theme is this, that the church can live faithful and holy lives in all circumstances because their hope in the return of Christ. I really think that sets up the entire theme that the church can live faithful and holy lives in all circumstances because of their hope in the return of Christ. But then we turn to chapter 2 and we start to see how their conversion starts to affect their Christian ministry. 
And you see, this example was set out first by Paul as he pointed to imitate me. And he says how he, they, the Thessalonians imitate him, even in his affectionate living among them, but also how they continue to uh, imitate the words that he gave to them. Paul would say that it was like a father with his children. He exhorted each and every one of them and encouraged them to walk in a manner worthy of God and, and worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And then we come to our passage today on the latter part of chapter two, where Paul begins to speak about his regard for the local church, his regard for the Thessalonian Christians who he has been torn apart from. You see, if you have to use for a thought today, kind of a summary sentence of what this sermon would kind of drive to, I think it would be this. Is that those who rightly regard the church will, right, will sacrificially seek its well-being in the faith and pray for it to mature in holiness. Those who rightly regard the church will sacrificially seek its well-being in the faith and pray for it to mature in holiness. And from that thought, I'll have, really have five observations for us today. I know that's more than what I usually give, but don't worry, we'll still get out here on time. Uh, but five observations for us even here today. And those five are, the one is that the church is to be highly regarded. Number two, the church is going to be opposed by Satan. Number three, the church should be established in faith. Number four, the church is worth sacrificing for. And number five, the church is expected to grow spiritually. But we come, well, I'll repeat those as we go through our sermon today. But for the first point, the church is to be highly regarded. See, Paul's testimony to is much of his delight of the Thessalonians. There in verse 19 of our passage today, he tells them, he says, what is our hope and our joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You see, his delight is best understood in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. That is to say that his delight is in terms of what is glorious before Christ at his return. Because if you set it in context of what is glorious among the people there in Thessalonica, the church, the Christians, they're not much to bat an eye at. They're, they're not really worth anything. They're not really a glorious people if you ask the community around them. But before Christ and at his return, Paul gives some glowing regards for the church there. He says there's this, this hope how if Christ returned, he hopes to be standing alongside with the Thessalonians. How are there his joy because he will be found standing in a position with them that builds up his joy, that they are standing in the faith. And he says, they are my crown of boasting. He says, they bear the glory of God. But why use this language of a crown? Why are they a crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I, I think a simple, short biblical theology of just what does this crown look like among God's chosen people is actually helpful. So if you come back with me even to Exodus chapter 39, 
you see God is establishing the priesthood. And in the priesthood, there is these people known as the priests who would have these crowns upon their heads. And they made these plates of golden crowns, and on, on these crowns they would engrave on there, holy is the Lord. So their proclamation upon their crown is that, that the Lord is holy, and they are to live this life that proclaims exactly what is fixed upon the crown, upon their heads, that the Lord is holy. But we know very well that the people of Israel, that the priesthood would not live a life that proclaims what is set upon their crown. And even the prophet Ezekiel will have to come and remind them that because they do not live the lives that are worthy of the crown that's been set upon their head, that Lord would now have to remove the crown from their heads. He has to take it and leave them without a crown and give it to one whom judgment will come with. He would give it to one whom glory will come with. He would give it to one who will proclaim that the Lord is holy. You can read about that more in Ezekiel chapter 21. But then we see that as the Lord Christ comes, he bears this crown, even in the crown of thorns. This inscription that reads upon it is that the Lord is holy because he lives the holy life. But then we see that this crown is not just left upon the head of Christ, but it's even given among the church. This is not the only place where we see kind of this image of the crown given to the church. But even in Philippians chapter 4, we see, therefore, he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We see this crown has been placed upon the church to proclaim that the Lord is holy. It is a worthy and this most honorable crown to be bearing when Christ returns. You see, that is why Paul boasts in the church, because the church boasts about Christ and his holiness. And his people, oh, his people are beautiful before him. They are wonderful, holy people. They will be regarded as ones who proclaim the goodness of the Lord. Yes, they will be ones who regard the church as what it is. But we have to ask us the question, like, how do you regard the church? What are your thoughts about the church? Because, you know, sometimes when you ask people, even outside the church, what they think about the church, they'll let them say it's a bunch of hypocrites. It's a bunch of, a bunch of liars. They're too holy for me. There's not really enough going on in there. They don't do enough. They're too small. They don't have this. It's often set in negative terms. Well, even what about your thoughts? How do you think about the local church? How do you even think about your church here at Old Missouri Road? What thoughts come to your mind? Do you consider this place to be one that bears that inscription that the Lord is holy, that he is righteous, that he is good? Do you see the wonderful and beautiful privilege that it is to bear this sign upon our heads that Christ is holy? Amen. This is a wonderful and beautiful thing, and you should be encouraged by this, my people. Encourage the body. We bear this crown. And it is my hope that in the end, as Christ returns, I will be standing with you full of joy, bearing this same crown, that our Lord is holy. This should be an encouragement to us. Encourage each other with this truth. You see, this comes, though, with this crown. 
that comes with it a warning. You see, this comes with a warning that although that anything that boasts itself in Christ here will be opposed here as well. There's an opposition out there. There's an enemy. There's one who's coming to oppose those who proclaim Christ as the Lord. And that brings us to our second observation. The church is opposed by Satan. The church is opposed by Satan. See, Paul recalls his efforts in verse 18 and his desires to see the people of God face to face. Not just one time, but he often wants to see them face to face. Verse 18, he says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. But you see, I think Satan was kind of pulling double duty here as, as, as we read our text today, because not only was he hindering Paul, but he was also afflicting and tempting the people at Thessalonica. We read there in verse 5 that this was actually a fear that Paul had, that Satan was actually tempting them, and that his labor would be in vain. He says in verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, When I could bear it no longer, I sit to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. You see, there is a lesson worth keeping at the forefront of our minds here, saints. Satan has a method to his madness, and his madness includes dividing and conquering. He wants to divide his people where they cannot gather together. He loves to see his people separated, not with one another, not seeing each other face to face. He loves to tear them apart, going back to that imagery used there in verse 17. He loves to tear his people apart, both physically and spiritually. And now Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're torn away. Paul is willing to even be left alone. Now he's alone in Athens, a place full of adultery. He is alone now that Timothy has gone back to the Thessalonians. Satan loves to keep his people from gathering together. And the purpose of it is so he can just tempt you all day long. He wants to tempt you by himself. He knows that the pack is strong together, but if he gets you alone, he knows that his temptation has a fuller effect. Verse 3, verse 4 of chapter 3 says, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we would suffer affliction. He's warning them all that, yes, this affliction was going to come because as soon as you start proclaiming this Christ, Satan will oppose you. And he wants to separate us. He does not like it when we gather in places like this together. He wants to separate us and tempt us. Just let this actually be a warning. Maybe this is something new for you for young Christians. Be aware of this as you continue to grow. Sometimes we can think that we are strong enough and we're mighty enough to kind of live the Christian life by ourselves. But know that if you believe that, you're actually just playing to the scheme of Satan. He loves it when you think you can do it by yourself. He loves it when you think, I can do this alone. Because as soon as you begin separating yourself from the body, he brings the temptation. He loves it when you try to do that. I just want to encourage you, do not separate yourself from the body of Christ, but rather continue to see yourself engrafted into it. You see, in the midst of all this discomfort and the temptations of life, we can be tempted as well. Even though we're together, we still can be tempted. 
You see, it's just even in natural things, even in human things, even when we feel hungry, we're tempted to be angry. Even when we're lonely, we're, we're tempted to be sexually immoral. When we're stressed out, we tend to turn to evil vices. When we're tired, we're tempted to be distant. You see, this is common for all of us. But remember, our desire is not to fulfill every physical need that we want, fulfill all of our fleshly desires, but our desire is to glorify God. Remember what is on your crown. Check your crown, my friends. James 1.14 tells us that each person is tempted when we're lured away by our evil desires. Check your desires. Does your desires read that I want to be the greatest or that God is great? Are you the one that's going to proclaim the goodness of God or will you fall to your own evil desires? We will all fight temptations against temptation, against temptation and we should be checking it to make sure that we're still standing on the firm foundation of God. That even as it says in verse 3, that no one is moved by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we are destined for this. And I love the emphasis that is given in verse 3. The fact that no one is moved by these afflictions. We say it here, when temptation comes, well, we know it's because of Christ, because we proclaim we know it because we proclaim Christ that these temptations come. Satan does not like it, so we must make sure that no one is moved by these afflictions. Now, that's a hot call, you know, because usually when we think about going to battle, fighting temptation, you want to save the strongest first, you know, get the king out of there. Get the people who are worthwhile. But the call here is actually to say, make sure that no one is given to these afflictions. Make sure that we all know that we were destined for this. If you proclaim this about Christ, we are all destined to be tempted by Satan. Make sure they all are aware of this and make sure that all are able to overcome this affliction. Because we have to tap into the power. We have to tap into what actually we proclaim. We have to fall into Christ's hands knowing that he can deliver us from temptation and keep us from evil as we pray in the model prayer. Because Christ himself, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 2, we know that he suffered just in the same way. He was tempted, but in every way he was tempted, he was found sinless. He was alone in the garden, yes, we know that, but yet he was still sinless. He was tempted, but yet he did not give in to sin. He was betrayed by his own, but yet he still kept true to the word of God, giving glory to God in all his days. He was denied by his followers, even Peter, but yet he continued to give glory to God. He was beaten and spit upon, but yet he continued to give glory to God. All the temptations that came to him, even as he was crucified on an old ragged cross, but yet he still gave glory to God in every situation. And now we know because of his sinless life, he was raised from the grave, proving that yes, Sin, temptation, death have no power over me whatsoever. And we can trust in this Savior. We can trust in the one who overcame temptation as we bear our crown. And we can respond in repentance and believe, knowing that, yes, our Savior will keep us. For we do not have a high priest who is unfamiliar with our pains, but one who sympathizes with us in our every weakness. But one who is in respect is yet without sin. So while he can sympathize with us, we can trust that if we abide in them, we'll bear much fruit and not give in to the temptations of this one. 
we too can stand in Christ. But we must trust him. Let this go as an exhortation among us even here who are Christians, but not a part of local church. You see, Satan loves it that you're not a part and you're not gathering regularly with the body because he wants to bring this type of temptation upon you. Let me encourage you to think well about your life as a Christian. You know, if I was walking along the sidewalk and I saw a thumb laying on the ground, I would think this should be attached to something. I would think this shouldn't be left on the ground by itself. Even more so when I see a Christian that's kind of floating in the world but not attached to the local body. We should think it odd that people who call themselves Christians aren't connected into this glorious, regarded thing as the church. Because we know that Satan loves it when you are left alone. Let no scheme of the tempter deceive you. Keep gathering with the body. Think what it's like to be in faithful membership with a local church. I would love to talk with you afterwards. I'll be standing down here during the invitation if you want to talk to me about some of that. Or I'll be standing at the back at the end of the service. I would love to continue to think with you about what does it mean to faithfully gather with a local church. You see, Paul, I believe Paul was convinced that the best way to keep the church standing is to establish them in the faith. That brings us to our third observation. The church is established in faith. See, just as much as Satan has a method, Paul also had a method. And his method was faith. We're going to establish them in the faith. We're going to appear face to face with them and to help them in their faith. When he could not himself, he sent Timothy. His goal was to meet face to face with the people to establish them in the faith. You see, the purpose of Timothy coming is in verse in chapter 3, verse 2 to 3. It says to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. You see, the most surefire way to make sure that the body is able to withstand the evil one is to establish the body in the faith. And we sent Timothy to learn about their faith, fearing that their temptation had actually overcome them. You see, there's a direct correlation to see if you're establishing your faith and will you flee from temptation. You see, you can imagine the joy that comes to Paul, though, when he reads about all their affliction, he hears about all their suffering and all the temptation, knowing the schemes of Satan, just kind of the, the weight that is lifted off of him when he hears, oh, yes, the Thessalonians, they are firm in their faith. Their work of labor, their work of faith and their labor of love is what he begins to thank God for, for in chapter 1, verse 3. And then again here in verse chapter 3, verse 6, we see his same type of thanksgiving is given for the good news of your faith and love. It is the faithfulness of the people that Paul finds comfort in. But still, Paul has the awareness, though, that although they have true faith, there's still need to grow in the faithfulness. They have true faith, but it still needs to grow in the fullness of their faith. Which is why I believe he gives this prayer in chapter 3, verse 10, that we pray most earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. I believe this is serve as a, even as a model for Old Missouri Road even here today. 
You see, as we think about pastors and what the pastor should be, the pastor should be one who is seeking to establish and exhort you in the faith that we receive from the word. He should be one who encourages us to gather with one another to be established in this faith. He should be one that prays to see how we should continue to exhort and encourage one another in the faith. This should be his primary responsibility, knowing the temptations and the enemy that is out there. And the church, in response, should respond in faith and love towards one another. That should affirm the faith to one another. Well, how do we do that? How do we exactly affirm the faith to one another? Well, I believe there's just some simple things which can be helpful to get to this idea of how do we affirm the faith. Statements of faith are helpful to know exactly what is it that you do believe. What is it about the faith that you have come to understand? Think about what is your covenant, how you should live among one another. Do you know what it's calling you to do? Even as we think about membership, we should think well about in our membership as we let others in. Do they understand the faith that we're calling them to? Do they understand what they're committing them to, themselves to as they covenant with one another? These are just simple practices of which we should do to think about how is it that we affirm the faith among one another? You see, I think making these practices will help us establish us in the faith. And this is not to take away from the idea of the uh, consistent gathering of his people. There's just no substitute for it, for consistently gathering with each other face to face. I think that's why you see this repeated phrase over and over in the text, that he wants to see them face to face. My friends, take responsibility for the faith. You see, what I preach, you should even be checking me. Don't just assume that everything I say is, is gospel. You know the text, you have the word. Do some study. I welcome any questions about the text that you have. If you hear anything of error, I am not a man who is without error. So you should be even looking in the text, establishing yourselves in the faith as I continue to exhort you. Feel free to ask me questions of what you hear on Sunday. You see, and also we got to think about how, even what we sing. Things that we sing, are those things which are things which are God-glorifying or are those just those things that we kind of like? Make sure that we test the spirits by the word of God to see if they are actually from God. Don't sit back in the church. Lean in and affirm the faith of the believers with one another. The faith of the church should be given as a regular maintenance. You know, we keep maintenance on everything. Our cars, houses, you know, making sure everything stays up to tip-top shape. But even more so with the maintenance of the church. Think about all the tenets of our faith that we have to keep up just to make sure we're all still affirming the same thing. Just think about, you know, salvation. What is salvation? What is the Lord's Supper? What is baptism? What is atonement? What is justification? What is sanctification? What is glorification? What about these other Asians of the world? Like, there's a much of our faith that we have to keep up with. And we should keep regular maintenance on to make sure that we are still affirming these things with one another. And like we mentioned this before, the faith is often accompanied by a labor of love. That's our fourth one, that the church is uh, to be sacrificing, to be sacrificing in this labor of love. You see, Paul was left alone in Athens in chapter 17 of Acts. And you see, Athens was a city full of idols, full of prods, full of like uh, this, this just sinfulness. And even there in Athens, he's put on trial for his faith. 
And just imagine what's going through his mind as he's left alone in Athens by himself with no one. He sent his buddy Timothy back to be with the Thessalonians. And Timothy, he's not on safe ground either. He's going back to the same place where he was just kicked out. He's going back to the same people that Paul says they're likened to the Jews who killed Jesus and who killed the prophets. This is what Timothy is walking back into, all to show them this sacrificial love that they have for one another. Paul and Timothy is putting their life on the line. And when Paul says he was willing to be left alone in Athens, there in the chapter 3, he's not talking about just for a little while. He really knows that if I send Timothy back, I may never see him again. He knows the sacrifice. Timothy knows the sacrifice. It, it could even mean death. This is the sacrifice even when we call it to the greatest degree, even as we look at our precious Savior. You see, they loved each other and wanted to be with one another, that they are willing to sacrifice even their life to be with one another. You see, our sacrifice today may not be of a physical one, and I understand that. We can freely come out here and not worry about is there an armed guard at the door ready to slay us. But it most definitely means that we must die to ourselves. We may not be killed physically, but it does mean we should die to ourselves. But the simple question is, is that what are you willing to sacrifice to gather with the people? What are you willing to sacrifice to give up to encourage each other face to face that we can gather with one another? What are you willing to sacrifice to show love to the body throughout the week? Maybe it's just to sacrifice an hour of your time to pick up a phone and call someone. Just to encourage them in the faith, to read the scripture to them, to pray for them. Maybe it's just to sacrifice a moment of your time to bake a pan of brownies just to encourage one of the members of the church. Maybe it's just to take a moment of your time just to pray through the church roster that you have, just to pray for them spiritual things. How are you sacrificing your life to see that you're that you're loving one another? You see, you remember the sacrifice that you should make. I think it's helpful to remember the sacrifice that was made for us. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look full into his bloody, glorious face. And the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. See, we must leave the comforts of our own lives just like Christ did as he left the comforts of heaven above to come to dwell among man. He laid down his desires of the flesh to pursue God's will. And the crown of glory was once for, for him a crown of thorns that he put upon his head. He took the thorns, he took the nails in his hand and in his feet. He shed the blood as a sacrifice for his people. A love like this is what we have as an invitation. My plea to you, non-believer, those who would not call yourself a Christian, is to look to this Jesus. See what he has sacrificed for you to show his love towards you, to pay the price for your sins. This Jesus has gave his life for us. And he calls you to turn from your ways and trust in Jesus. If you want to know more about this, I invite you to come talk to me as well. I'm not hard to find. Come visit me. I want to talk to you more about what does it look like to trust 
in this Jesus. We should endeavor to seek the Lord in this way, to show this sacrificial love. And these endeavors should be seen in how we sacrifice to one another. But I think it brings us to our last point. It's how the church it should be concerned for its spiritual growth. The church should be growing spiritual. You see, the letter of Thessalonians up to this point is not marked by a lot of instructions. It's not marked by a lot of do this, do that, do this, do that. But it's marked by a lot of just like Paul giving thanks to God for the life of the Thessalonians. He tells them that they've been loving and faithful and hopeful. And that's great because it's a largely, it's, it's an encouraging report that he's received back from Timothy. You see, Paul in his letters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's led to write down these things, even as he prays for them. In our last few verses today, actually a prayer that is given from God through Paul to us even here today. And I think it's worth reading for us in, that, in its entirety. Verse 11 through 13, it says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Now notice that while Paul is fully aware of all the afflictions, he knows all the pain, he's very aware of their discomforts and the enemy himself. But yet, Paul prays for something not just physical, but he prays spiritual things. He prays that the Lord would direct their ways. He prays that the Lord would cause them to increase in love. He prays that the Lord would establish their hearts. You see, Paul understands the need to pray for physical needs, but he also understands the need to pray for spiritual needs. He understands that the church, while we may grow in numbers, we need to be growing in spirit as well. The great labor of the church has always been to get people to give serious attention to spiritual matters. Now that is because at the coming of Christ and what will last for all eternity is the spirit. These spiritual things which we should be growing into is his primary concern. You see, we'll get new bodies. Glory be to God, because these two ACLs, they mess with me sometimes. We will get new bodies. We'll get new earth. We'll get new heavens. But the saints, we already have a new spirit. So we should take time to cultivate and grow in the spirit even now. Let that mark how we pray, saints. Pray the word of God. Pray scripture. Pray the Psalms. Pray the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. Pray these spiritual things for one another and over your own life. Pray with one another these scriptures. You see, Satan hates it when we gather together. He hates it even more when we pray together because he doesn't like us growing in these spiritual things. So pray them over one another. They will seek to grow in this way. Talk about these things with one another and pray. How can we be growing in our love, in our faith, in our hope, in our maturity with one another? These things are worth praying for. See, these are just a few observations I think we can make about the church. And I'm sure that the Thessalonians, they were not perfect. 
As we get deeper into our text, we'll find out how, how they lacked in their faith. We can make sure, but nevertheless, these things we observe can show us how we can continue to be perfected in Christ. You see, at the coming of the Lord, there will be a crown of boasting. There will be a crown of boasting before the Lord, and it's my prayer that it will continue to be us on Missouri Road. It will continue to be our hope that we are gathered with one another. Even if we may be limited here, we'll be fully gathered in the end. That our joy will be full at the seeing of our Savior, who is no longer slain, but is coming back on clouds of white. We'll stand, not no longer just on faith, because our faith will be made into sight. What a glorious picture for the church. But do you regard the church as this marvelous thing? I invite you to look into the face of Christ and his glorious body. Let's pray. What a church that you have built. What a church that you sustain, that you keep. And Father, you promised us in your word that the gates of hell can't even prevail against it. And it's this hope that we will live out until you return for your people. So keep us.